Quiet on the set. Okay, everybody, quiet on the set. Scene one, take ten, Marker. From the studios of the Modern School of Film, welcome to Murmur. My name is Robert Malazzo, and over the next hour together, we'll explore where culture meets craft. Today on Murmur, wounds from a friend. Broadcaster Doris Burke is with us. Welcome. to Murmur. Welcome back to Murmur. Robert Malazzo here with you. I'm the founder of the Modern School of Film with you on Murmur Radio. The website is appropriately murmurradio.com. Download, subscribe, anytime access, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, Stitcher. If you have a subject you would like me to tackle on the show, email me directly, murmurradio at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest. And if you want to come on and chat and hear and think and let us know how we did or what you thought, just shoot me a note. Social handles at MSF Murmur, Twitter, Instagram. We're around, basically. <laughs> Murmur Radio. Welcome. Welcome back. On Murmur Radio, it's always one subject, one guest. Today's guest is someone I've been wanting to have on the show for a while. She's just so damn busy in a great way. Pinned her down uh, in transit on the way to work, so to say. She is part of the NBA team, the NBA family, the National Basketball Association, American basketball, for those of you listening outside of the States. She is a sideline reporter. She is a color commentator. She's part of the full package that uh, both the cable TV and the network side bring to you when they bring you the NBA. She's done it all. She's a Hall of Famer. Uh, She is in the National Basketball Association Hall of Fame, like the Hall of Fame. She's also in the Providence College Hall of Fame. She is a Providence Friar, her alma mater here in the States. She was an accomplished player at Providence before she kind of slid or surfed left to do some of the radio side um, and stopped doing that. She actually was coaching. She was doing some assistant coaching at Providence. She was there as a player in Providence at the time that Rick Pitino, early 80s, 82, 83, Rick Pitino was leading the men's side as a coach. And a guy named Billy Donovan uh, was the player. Billy is actually now a coach in the NBA. So Billy and Doris have come up together professionally in really interesting ways. Also, another colleague of hers on the NBA side is Jeff Van Gundy, who was an assistant to Rick Pitino at Providence. So they knew each other from Providence. They know each other now. Why does this all matter? It all matters because today's topic, and who else would you want to have other than the top of the broadcast profession, the analysis profession? Who else would you want to have but Doris to talk about today's subject, which is criticism? Everyone's a critic. Remember that old chestnut? I want to revisit that chestnut with you today because I want to look at criticism with a different slant. And the criticism is criticism can be a good thing. It can be a productive thing. It can be a helpful thing. It's in the eye of both the receiver of the criticism, but also the giver of the criticism. We'll talk about that with Doris Burke today. But I do think it's time that we look at at criticism as a response, as an honest response, motivationally a productive response. That's kind of it. What is the motivation of the criticism? Is it so that person improves? Is it to share a viewpoint? Is it as a friend? Is it as a loved one? Is it as an intimate? Is it as a teacher? Is it as a coach? Not all criticism is created equal. Let's agree to 
that today. You can't respond. <laughs> it's one way right now. <laughs> Email me, murmurradio at gmail.com. <laughs> but for today's purposes, I want to look at criticism as the gateway to improvement, to knowledge, to, to self-reflection. Part one is who is giving the criticism. Is it someone we don't like? Is it someone we respect? Is it someone who's done what we've done? Doris has played basketball. She hasn't played professional basketball, but she's earned credential to analyze, to give feedback, to give critique to NBA players, both directly and over the airwaves. And over the airwaves, as you know, when we broadcast criticism, we're in this kind of slippery world now. We are in a very sensitive world. That is not a bad thing. But we do have to legitimately judge the source of the criticism. Doris, as far as I'm concerned, is an expert critic. Is she a critic, though? I want to ask her that today. Does she think what she does is criticism? Is she a critic? The word we often use professionally for what Doris does is analysis. What's the difference between analysis and criticism? Feedback and criticism. Teaching and criticism. I want to talk to Doris about that today because she actually has a master's in teaching. Uh, she said when her broadcasting career ends, she wants to be a teacher. I have bad news for her. She already is a teacher. We'll talk to her about that today here on Murmur. It's funny. One of the interesting battles criticism is undergoing now is the receiver of the criticism. How do we empower that receiver? How do we educate that receiver to understand or to at least take a moment to be self-aware enough to know this is not personal? This may be in the spirit of growth. Now, not all criticism is in the spirit of growth. Oftentimes, criticism is just that, cutting, biting, personal. In the early 90s, I was thinking of uh, theater criticism. Frank Rich, late of the New York Times, was uh, reviled by playwrights and producers because he had the power in his position as a theater critic of the New York Times to open and close a show in the same night often. And often people would see his criticisms as personal. And that's where the lines were drawn. Oftentimes playwrights, I know Tony Kushner, I think, had a, a back and forth with Frank Rich. And a lot of playwrights have taken issue with Frank Rich, saying that the criticism goes into the personal space. And that's oftentimes where the receiver of criticism fights back or responds back. In the NBA, the National Basketball Association, where Doris calls her professional home, we have players receiving criticism differently. We have we have players receiving coaching differently. Some players have a certain skin that deflects it. Some ideally receive it and look at it reasonably. But most, it seems, most players, most receivers of criticism in Doris's world, <laughs> they would rather be builders. They would rather be shot callers than receivers of criticism. That's what I think makes Doris especially adept at what she does. I want to look at that because the players and the colleagues and the world she's operating in on a professional sports level is changing. But I think it's also a reflection of how people receiving criticism. I teach students. Students often take criticism in very unique ways. You can't assume every student is going to hear the same thing the same way. It's just not possible. Some students want to be pushed. Some students want more space. Same with loved ones. Same with colleagues and friendships. How does someone from a fraternity criticize someone else in that fraternity? How does a writer criticize a writer? How does a director criticize a director and an actor and an actor? There's an interesting kind of confederacy around people who do the like thing that you're criticizing. Do you name names? Do you not name names? I think this is all instinctual at a certain point, whether you're a teacher or do pro sports of any variety, it all becomes instinctual. That's why the honest criticism is the criticism. If one is honest in their criticism and one can legitimately judge that it comes from a structural place, not a personal place, not a personal attack, the criticism is worth it. It may sting. I know I, sometimes I've given feedback to a student and they've hated me for it. So it may sting me, but I'm okay with that. That's part of my job. And that sting, that may boomerang back to you. And that criticism may elevate later. You may never see it. That's one of the weird vagaries of criticism. See teacher in the dictionary. <laughs> see friendship. Sometimes we remember something a friend says, and we think we're no longer a friend with that person, but that was right. Our response to criticism changes in time. We may see something as false in the moment, true in retrospect. Ever wonder where we would be without critics? Uh, when you've stopped smiling at that question and that idea, think about it. Um, 1980, the NFL, National Football League, American Football, uh, NBC, National Broadcast Company, did a game, a late season game between the New York Jets and the Miami Dolphins. Do the broadcast without broadcasters, without 
analysts, without other voices. It was literally text on the screen and stats on the screen, and then you sort of guided yourself. I remember seeing that, and it it's like a ghost town. <laughs> and it was kind of like watching ghosts. It was like watching a game from the past, one that had been played many years ago and was slightly less relevant somehow without people talking about it and thinking about it. And sports are a great example of this. We like to talk about sports. We like to get our ideas out of our system. So analysts provide criticism, let's say, provide an antidote to the silence, the silence of sports. We need reaction. We need activity. I like to go to the games and bring the radio broadcast on my headphones and listen, baseball especially. Baseball, which is an incredible game for radio, full of feedback, full of critics. It's the barstool of sports mentality. We like to discuss our opinions, even if they suck and even if everyone has one. In a career full of firsts, I think Doris is cutting some new first and how she looks at the rigor of the sports she analyzes or critiques framed with the personalities involved. I'm going to keep using critic with her and see if she likes that term, professional critic. Maybe that's it, a professional critic, meaning they're not a critic (laughs) 24-7. That would be awful if you were just criticizing 24-7. She has found this new brushstroke. She's found this new tone of voice that marries experience and the personal and the professional and the perspective, the perspective that these are sports. We are not swapping kidneys here. We're not repairing gallbladders. Do you repair a gallbladder? Can you do that? Or is it, is that sort of it at that point? Rick Carlisle, who's a professional basketball coach of the Dallas Mavericks, said she has a gift of making the complex simple. And that's to me what the best critics do. Players really respect her criticism because it's multidimensional. It comes, yes, from a place of a practitioner, but also from a place who knows these men, who knows what these men are subject to, knows the Petri dish they swim in because she's just on the border of the Petri dish. She's never too far from the Petri dish. That's what makes her criticism valid. It's so subtle. And with coaches, it's so subtle. And with analysts, it's so subtle. With Doris, it's so subtle. With good friends, it can be subtle. It can be rough because they're good friends. Sometimes friends can be the harshest critics. That's the respect. Criticism. Don't be scared. Don't be scared to be criticized because often the receipt of the criticism is a referendum of how you feel. Here's a chestnut for you. If you feel insecure, a criticism will hurt more. (laughs) Yes, sometimes the truth does hurt. Today, it's more about the usefulness of criticism of verity. It's about criticism that comes from an honest place, a true place, an honest source. And even if the criticism is wrong, the incorporation was right, criticism has a lot to offer. Don't be scared. (laughs) Doris Burke on criticism. Today on Murmur. Now this. Thank you, Hadrian. Barney, if you could just give us a minute, we'll have our decision. Oh, Adrian, you were great out there, man. I know, it's gonna be you. Oh, what are you talking about, Barney? You got it, you know it. Whatever whatever happens, you're the best. Buddies? Buddies. (laughs) They're ready for you guys. Adrian, Barney, well, we've made our decision. But before we tell you, I just want to say once again, how truly difficult it was for us to make our choice. And to thank you for your patience throughout this long, arduous audition. Thanks. Thanks. We're gonna go with Adrian. I knew it, man. (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I I just never wanted anything so much in my life. And now that I got it, I just can't deal with it. Well, that's okay, Adrian, we understand. Barney, we all agreed that your dancing was great, your presentation was very sexy. Uh, I guess, I guess in the end, we all thought that Adrian's body was just much, much better than yours. Uh-huh, uh-huh, okay. You see, it's just that at Chippendales, our dancers have traditionally had that lean, muscular, healthy physique, like Adrian's, whereas yours is, well, fat and flabby. Right, right. No, Barney. No, no. No, Barney, we've, we've made our decision. Uh, 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 excuse me, can I, can, I, can I make a point? Sure. You know, I, I just want to say that this guy, he is one hell of a dancer, you know, and he's got the sexiest moves I have ever seen. And if you're really serious about going with me, you know, it can only be because his body is so bad. 
Thanks, man. Sure. Uh, you know, but uh, because on straight dancing and presentation, ain't no way I'm better than him. Uh, amen. Amen. You see, Barney, we considered the possibility that our heavier female customers might actually prefer a heavy, heavier man that they could identify with. Uh, but then we decided... Even as I stood there listening to them explain why they had chosen me, I still couldn't believe it. Ever since I could remember, I had dreamed of becoming a Chippendales dancer, and now I was one. I never saw Barney again, but I'll never forget him and how for one brief moment he brought out the best in me. That was the time of my life. Filmmaker Stanley Kubrick was once asked, have you ever learned anything from a critic? He said, when a critic has seen my movies as often as I've seen my movies, then I'll learn something from a critic. Well, you know, that quip to me referenced this idea of seeing something from multiple sides, seeing disciplines from multiple sides. Today's guest has seen clouds and sides from both sides. Uh, she has been in the arena. She is now near the arena on a weekly basis. I'm not going to call her a trailblazer because she hates that term. Uh, so let's call her a history maker. For nearly 30 years, she's been at the top of the craft, the top of the business, the top of the field as a game analyst, sideline reporter, studio host, and a lead broadcaster for both men's and women's pro basketball at the highest level, and no one's ever done that. She's a secret master of education. We're going to get to that. We're both Long Islanders. My condolences. Uh, and we both used to high-five bushes in the backyard. She would wear a purple shooting jacket. I was wearing a purple Lakers jersey. Her longtime friend and colleague, Jeff Van Gundy, once called her the LeBron James of sportscasters. I call LeBron James the Doris Burke of basketball players. Please welcome to Murmur and to the Modern School of Film, Professor Doris Burke. Hey, Doris, how are you today? I'm doing well, doing very well. That's quite an introduction. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. No, thank you. My pleasure. Or are you? You're not on tonight, right? You're. You're. Uh... I am not. No, I'm driving to New York. I have. I have Friday's game. How far in advance do you know your schedule, like your game schedule? Is that a weekly thing, or do you have it out till April? No, usually several months in advance. Yeah, some may change here and there, uh, but. For the most part, I know my schedule, yeah. Uh, time is the most precious thing, and I thank you for lending yours. Today, I want to talk a little bit about criticism. When you hear that word, you know, that I always hear it with a, with an uppercase C. What do you think of criticism, and is it always pejorative? It is definitely not always pejorative. Um, I think the first thing I think of is where is the criticism coming from? Who is it coming from, and do you trust the person it's coming from? Uh, for instance, I had a recent call from a colleague of mine uh, who voiced an opinion about uh, a particular phase of my work and 
and uh, what he thought of it, and it wasn't necessarily positive, and I thought it was accurate. I don't know that I want to go into the details, but I did think it was accurate, and I thought I needed to consider it, uh, and to the greatest degree possible, sort of implement his criticism into uh, the particular thing that he, he was talking about. You know, as a woman in the age of social media, it's uh, critics can come from far and wide, and I think you have to take the source uh, first and foremost uh, and decide whether it's relevant to you. Mm. Uh, but I definitely do not think it's always pejorative, no. Is it tone-based? Let's say something was levied at you, an idea or uh, uh, a response or a reflection. You know, I could call it feedback, and that's a softer idea. Is it is it subtextual? Like, if you hear something, can you hear it as simply feedback? Yeah, I'm going to go back to the example I just cited because when the person made the phone conversation to me, he was he was agitated, and mm. he was agitated because it's he knows sometimes criticism can be difficult to accept, mm-hmm. particularly if he if it's true, and you both know it's true. Um, but that's an uncomfortable conversation, or it can be. Uh, you know that old proverb about wounds from a friend are true. So <laughs> yes. again, I would say, and and you know we learn in the broadcasting business. Um, that 65% of communication is often nonverbal. And it's an amazing thing to me, the power of words. For instance, as it relates to criticism, I find it very difficult in my profession to criticize an NBA coach mm. because I've, I have not coached in the NBA. I have not played in the NBA. It doesn't mean I can't do an incredibly credible, good job as an analyst on the game but my sensibilities in attacking my profession are going to be different than Jeff Van Gundy, who has lived the life of those coaches. I pick my verbiage very carefully, and criticism may be the wrong word. I may simply have a question in my mind as to why a coach, whether I was covering college basketball, women's, men's, or the NBA, I might have a question as to, oh, why didn't you use that timeout there? Mm. Now, some might be sensitive to that and think that's a criticism, when in fact it's a question in my mind. But you're 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 correct in saying, you know, sometimes it is tone, uh, or the way the words are delivered, or the person who's delivering them. There is so much to criticism. Yeah. Well, it's a it's a rock and a hard place. We're talking to Doris Burke today uh, here on Murmur. You know, someone like Jeff Van Gundy or Mark Jackson, you know, your colleagues for the NBA, they're amazing on every level. They were great coaches or even, you know, players that go into the broadcasting arena. They know that trail, but they also it's not that they pull punches because they're coaches. Do you find that sometimes coaches who are analysts don't criticize coaches because their coaches, the the oxymoron. If 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 you're keeping a distance because you've never you've never been a coach, let's say. Although I, I think you want to be a coach, I've heard on some level <laughs> someday. Do you think some people from that fraternity or sorority of coaching are afraid to go there as well? And who wins if coaches, let's say, don't get criticism because people are afraid to go into that place? How do we how do we manage that? Well, I want you to think of the great golf analyst Johnny Miller and how and I, I'm, I've sort of reverted to the player perspective. And Johnny Miller, uh, you, you know, made many PGA players over the years angry because of how critical he could be. Right. But there was, uh, you know, there was a certain measure of. I've lived this, I know what it is, and I know what I see when I see it. But I also think Johnny Miller can be quite nuanced in his criticism and explain what a golfer may feel. And that's the beauty of Jeff and Mark and Mike Breen. I I believe in those three men at the table. In fact, there was a moment in last year's NBA Finals where it was a critique of officials. And I thought it was some of the most compelling television I had ever seen. It was game one of the NBA finals. And calls had gone against the Cleveland Cavaliers that were very difficult to take. And Mike Breen, um, you know, understanding the role of the officials, basically said they don't get everything right. And Jeff and Mark went at him pretty good. And I'm hitting the talk back, which is my communication button directly to the producer. 
and I'm saying in literally, I said, this is the most compelling shit I've ever heard on TV Amazing. because our men are at the top of their game and were willing to say some very hard things, not only to the officials of the NBA and to the league in general, but to also hold one another to account. And you do that when you have a special broadcast team. And Mike, Jeff, and Mark are the absolute best at what they do. And it was the most compelling thing. I, you know, some of the most compelling television and sports I'd ever heard. It's interesting. And one of the things hearing you all, either it's ESPN or on ABC broadcast, uh, the audiences have a great bullshit meter. I don't know if you would concur or not in the sense of, I think what makes it great. 100%. You know what I mean? I mean, in the sense of, um, let's leave studio stuff out of it. That's a different creature of a different substance. But what's great about Mike and, and Jeff and Mark and yourself, when the bullshit meter is sound, the critic can step in right is that right i mean be thyself as a critic is that kind of a bit of a guidance as a critic it's 100 percent, and I'll, I'll tell you an early lesson i learned and i remember the first time i filled in for clyde frazier on nick's television <laughs> yeah. did you wear his blazer no i did not wear anything outlandish i don't have clyde style <laughs> style sensibilities oh, don't. i love that man he's amazing uh, but i remember a friend of mine a guy friend saying to me well, oh my god how how on earth are you going to fill in for clyde frazier <laughs> and i and i said to him clyde had something like 36 19 and 11 in game seven of an NBA finals. There is absolutely no way for me to look at it through that prism. Mm -hmm. The audience knows that I come at this game from just a love of the game, a passion for it, and that I, I can't be Clyde. I can't be Jeff. It's impossible for me. And so, yes, I'll never fool the audience. They know who I am and what my background is. And if I ever try to fool them and pretend to be something I'm not, they would absolutely know, uh, you know, no question. And, I, and the, I'm thankful to Madison Square Garden Network because in my formative years, the, and having been in the New York market, they, they said, you, you can't fool these people. Because it's right in front of their eyes, and they know it. Yeah. And correct any of the record here, 2000, you were actually the first female commentator to call Knicks, uh, Knicks games radio and TV. Uh, I, we could be here all night and all day talking about the firsts, but I'll leave that. I do want to talk, I want to go backwards a little bit. Speaking with Doris Burke, growing up, as we lay on the couch a little bit, or you lay on the couch, growing up, you were the youngest of uh, eight siblings. Um, and I'm thinking... Man, was there criticism in the house? <laughs> and I, again, I don't mean <laughs> criticism like as a slander. I mean, what was the interplay like? Were your folks and the kids kind of vigilant to stuff? And were you giving each other feedback on life decisions? Were, were you raised in a kind of vat of critics? Again, critics is a better thing rather than a worse thing. No, you know, I'm the last of eight kids, very Irish Catholic family. There's 10 years between my oldest brother and myself. And to be perfectly honest with you, you know, it, it, there were some financial pressures in the house. And really, my dad was leaving the house at 4.30 every morning to go to work. As a worked for, a, for all intents and purposes, a construction company for over 50 years. And, you know, there's pressure and there's tension in, the, in, in, in that kind of environment. And no, you know, I mean, my parents are trying to put food on the table. So yeah. I wouldn't say there was criticism. I would say... You know, you had to be fairly independent and to figure it out yourself. You know, I, I don't ever recollect my mom or dad ever saying to me, did you do your homework? It just wasn't like that. You either did it or you didn't. Mm. Uh, and you worked for what you want and got it or you didn't. Those were all choices to be made because, you know, they're trying to pay bills, put food on the table, get people where they need to be. And that's stressful. Any Any parent who's had to, you know, Raised children knows what that is. So there's a filmmaker named Lars von Trier, and he was talking about um, being raised essentially, quote unquote, by hippies. And in that environment, he said, "I had to impose my own rules." So I, de I delivered this life of self-imposed rules because there were no rules. And I'm not saying there were no rules in your house. I'm just saying because it was more of a black and white existence. Did you find you were harder on yourself maybe than you needed to be? because it was all in or all out? Were you self-critical or you were a harsh critic of yourself? 
Wow, that's a great question. It's a big you one. Know, Sorry, I, and it's early. It's early no, in the morning. It's a, Sorry. <laughs> it's a great question. I, I don't know. It's funny. I feel like so much of my existence has been centered around the game. That's the truth. We moved from Long Island uh, to a small town on the Jersey Shore, Manasquan, when I was seven years old, and that's where I first picked up the game, and. You know, I would say that so much of my, my I don't want to say self-worth, but certainly my self-confidence, my belief in who I was, my definition of who I am, was wrapped up in my success as an athlete, and particularly the game of basketball. And so I would say my life has been defined by my success or failure in basketball or the drive to find something via the game. Mm-hmm. And when I didn't play well, I felt that deeply you know over the years you you come to find out there are things more important than the game um but i would say i don't know how to answer that other than to tell you the driving force of my life has been the game i, I think Since you have, literally i was seven as we get to our midbeat here with doris burke here on murmur you're right i mean i grew up an athlete and long islanders it was basketball and soccer and and you do learn a, a rigor uh, you know, and and it's a it's not pseudo discipline; it is discipline. And it made me wonder: Did being an athlete at such a young age and onward did that teach you how to deal with criticism? To sound very banal about the idea, you know, some players like to get yelled at. Some sports like to get yelled at. Basketball is kind of in betwixt and between. I think basketball has changed. I don't think basketball players on any level like to get yelled at anymore. Football players seem to need to get yelled at. But did being an athlete help you in this arena of receiving criticism? Unequivocally, yes. In fact, there have been points in my career at ESPN where perhaps a a, a coordinating producer or a producer, people who are in line, people whose very job definition requires them to give me feedback, and you would find them hesitant. And athletes want to be coached. Right. And I would say to you, I get what you're saying about athletes needing to be handled differently, but I believe ultimately, even at the NBA level and the NFL level, they want to be coached. The key is, do they believe in the person who's giving them the the feedback? Like one of the things Jeff Van Gundy and Hubie Brown have always said to me is, if NBA players believe you have a plan that takes them where they want to go, then they will be willing to accept your coaching. And I've, I've thought to myself, just tell me, you know, if I wanted a job and the ESPN wasn't going to give it to me or any employer, because there was a time in my career and a good stretch of time where I had multiple employers, you can give me a yes or no answer. And by that very yes or no answer, that is your criticism. I am either not worthy of the job or I am. Right. But tell me, because I can take it. Because I, you know, you, you, you started on teams. You didn't start on teams. You were the best player. You weren't the best player. You had the plays designed for you or you didn't. And all of that, if you're paying attention, is, quote, a criticism or an evaluation, right? That's all. Criticism can be an evaluation, too. And it can be advice. That's a weird one. That's a tepid one. I mean, there's a lot of synonyms, critiques. You know, anytime you throw a QU into a word, people get scared and think you're being fancy with them. But, you know, I, I want to talk as if we're actually courtside for a second, not to timestamp this talk too much, because I like when they're more evergreen. But something has been a pebble in my shoe recently because I'm a bit of a basketball head. You know, someone like Jimmy Butler, uh, amazing NBA player, started with the Chicago Bulls, traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves, then to the Philadelphia 76ers, and in both Chicago and Minnesota was coached by Tom Thibodeau. Tom Thibodeau was fired. The the rational and irrational minds would agree that he's a great coach. And Jimmy Butler is a great player, but their coexistence didn't mesh. These are my thoughts, not yours. Let me just put them aside. So does Jimmy Butler want to be coached? Yes, but I think sometimes athletes want to be coached on their terms. You know, uh, you know, like players want to be great or the team, like there's, there's one saying you'll hear players say a lot, well, I just want to win. But the reality is a lot of them want to win, but on their own terms, they want to win with a certain number of shots or a certain role. You know, the record of the Philadelphia 76ers with the addition of Jimmy Butler uh, is better than it was without him. 
And and I would make the same point about Joel Embiid requesting more shots. Well, you want to win, but you want to win on your terms. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, when I was thinking about the decision, not to make this too sportsy for you today, but in a way they want to be architects. You know, and it's something LeBron yeah. James did so well. LeBron James was leaving his original team after seven years. The Cleveland Cavaliers went on TV with Jim Gray and announced he was taking his talents to South Beach. All that liturgy, not to get too in the weeds of it, but not to bury the lead. And I know you probably hate burying leads and you never bury the lead uh, are you a critic uh you know i once had a boyfriend tell me that i was tough <laughs> <laughs> interviews over <laughs> uh, uh, i do i i sometimes i can think of the exact moment <laughs> i was at the beach oh say it i can't remember what we were discussing and he said you can be tough and i thought ooh, that's probably not a good thing <laughs> yeah, yeah but you know when you heard that did you what did you think do you think oh am i too tough on him am i too is my skin too tough for the world i mean what did that mean exactly that you were too tough i think that i can give people the feeling that i expect them to hold a certain standard and I would be fascinated to know the answer of my children <laughs> to your question to me, uh, are you a critic? You know, it's interesting. I I remember, and forgive me for bringing it back to my profession, but there was a point at which I was doing a game this year, and uh, I was talking about a young man. I believe it might have been Ben Simmons, and I said, I want more from Ben Simmons. I believe he has greatness in him. And I think I followed pretty quickly with, I can hear my son in my head <laughs> saying, Mom, leave that 21-year-old kid alone. Amazing. Uh, you know, and my son Matthew is a good barometer for me. He once was telling me, we were just sitting watching the Olympics, and the announcers were laughing with one another. And the, the proximity of the chairs in my, in my living room, at the time, my son just looked at me and he said, what I think you failed to understand, Mom, is that when you're having fun on the air, we're having fun with you, meaning the viewer is having fun with you. And it was a real, it was a pivotal moment because for eight to 10 years, Dick Vitale had been saying to me, people don't tune in to hear how smart you are about the game. They're tuning in because they have an interest in, the, in a team or an individual, or they're just looking for a diversion for a couple of hours. And it was... It was a big moment for me because I thought, okay, you know what? Maybe it is okay if I relax and enjoy myself because I do love the game yeah. and I want the viewer who's sitting there watching with me to enjoy it as much as I am. Dick Vitale may have autocorrected the other way, not to not to indict Dick because <laughs> Dick has brought a lot of passion. You know, say what you want about another Hall of Famer. Say what you want about Dick, good or bad, but his passion is undeniable and, and that's a big part of it. I remember when I was a kid watching, you know, Ewing versus Mullen listening to Dick and it was like, it was better than Christmas. As we move to our last act here with Doris Burke here and Murmur, I was thinking of the NFL, National Football League here in America. Troy Aikman is part of the lead broadcast team for Fox Sports. Troy Aikman said the same thing this year. And if you listen to Troy, as you listen to you, Troy's having more fun. He laughs more. It's not like he's a mental patient. It just seems like he's a little looser in the belt. So I think he knows that idea that, that there's an empathy, not an empathy, but there's a vicariousness that I think you strike beautifully. Um, <laughs> and you do it all well. That's kind of my point. I have a, two strange questions as we move towards our final beat here. Do you remember... 1980, the announcerless game, the NFL announcerless game. I mean, wow, NB I can't even imagine. So, in 1980, NBC was losing the the ratings, the NFL ratings race to CBS. And Brian Gumbel was actually was with NBC at the time. Don Olmeyer, then head of sports programming of NBC, wanted to try a game without announcers. It was all uh, Chiron. It was all lower thirds. There was a lot of buzz about it afterwards, and Brian Gumbel actually called it a stunt with a lowercase s. What do you think about that, taking the analysis and the criticism out of a game? And you must see that as homework to watch a little bit of that. What do you think about that, taking analysis out of a professional sporting game? I don't think it's the way I would enjoy it, and I'll tell you why. When I think back to some of the most enjoyable moments I've had as a sports fan, I can still remember 
the hair on my arm and goosebumps going up. I think back to Al Michaels calling the 1980 United States-Russia semifinal game. Do you believe in miracles? Yeah. Yes, and I. it's still a moment that will sort of have me have this visceral reaction. Mm. When Mike Breen is in the midst of uh, Game 6 at Miami and Ray Allen is in the corner off an offensive rebound and Mike <laughs> gets his signature bang to a moment. I just gave myself goosebumps thinking about Mike Breen's call. I'm smiling thinking about you thinking about yeah. it. Yeah, <laughs> Come on now. Come on now. I like know. Those are the moments. This is why I, um, I have great respect for TNT's coverage. Um, I, I always worry about those nights where it's players only. Players only, just to explain, sorry, um, is a broadcast done by NBA TV, and I think TNT does it here in the U.S. It's a basketball broadcast where it's full of players. The color commentator is a player, the analysts are players, the studio hosts are players, players only, the sideline reporters are players, thus players only. Sorry, go on. And listen, they have managed, and that has gone beautifully. I know they're thrilled with their players only. I I just so value the play-by-play man's call. I can't imagine it. I am opposed to the very idea of it. Isn't that what broadcasting or analyzing event is? It's about the symphony of voices. It's about the lead and the analyst and the sideline reporter. Is that overstating the poetry of what you do, that it's like, it's choral? No, and it's it's also about those moments of silence, which young broadcasters struggle with. You're so excited after a monumental three. Like, listen to the Ray Allen moment where the shot is made, Mike says bang, and then there's silence other than the announcers and the director cutting shots. See, this is what people, the fans shouldn't know this, but it takes about 100 people doing their job at a high level Mm. to really do a broadcast right. Should the Spurs foul? Should Miami go for the three right away? Just attack the basket. James catches, puts up a three. Won't go. Rebound, Bosch. Back out to Allen. His three-pointer. Bang! Tie game with five seconds remaining. Spurs do not have a timeout. But the officials are going to review to see if Allen was behind the line. Bosch with a huge offensive rebound. And now instant replay, enormous. From our vantage point where the fans are, we couldn't see if Allen was, but that was the signal. The appropriate time for a graphic, the silence after a big moment, the cutting of the appropriate shots of a director, not only the positive faces, but the faces of heartbreak. There is so much nuance that goes into a high-level telecast. The casual viewer shouldn't know it, but those who are involved in it should know it. It's why Mike and Jeff and Mark occupy the chairs they do, and why the producer and director who do that gig operate the chairs they do. They've earned it. And it's only come from experience. You occupy it as well. You know, I know you're you're far too modest and hardworking to say that. So I'm going to say it as if you didn't hear it. A um, couple of other stones I want to skip with you before we say goodbye. Doris Burke, one of the busiest human beings that I could think of in her profession or any others. You know, th- there's a kind of unwritten written rule in college broadcasting that people don't criticize college players during a broadcast, that names aren't named in the same way. It's very subtle. Criticism isn't levied the same way. I don't know if the untrained ear would hear that. You know, if you watch a college game, whether it's basketball or football, rarely will you say, Joe Smith, quarterback from Tennessee State, you made a bad decision. Now, in the NFL or the NBA or, or MLB, that will happen. Do you think there's a missed opportunity in not criticizing younger athletes the way we do professional athletes, their professional, let's say, counterparts? Is there a missed opportunity there for young athletes, for young people? It is absolutely true. I lived it. I believed in it. And the reason I say that is um, they are 18 to 22-year-old kids and sometimes 17. 
eight-year-old kids because mm-hmm. I stepped onto a college campus as a 17-year-old and didn't turn 18 until I was, it was November. But I also believe that there is, again, because of the power of words and the way you shape them and the tone in which you say it, a way to be critical of those college athletes. But they are not being paid, and therefore, you should do it differently. The job requires it, and you have to remember that they are young people. I would not want to be defined by who I was between the ages of 17 and 22. And there is by nature more sympathy because you know where they are fundamentally at the point in history in which they're operating. And I don't believe it's a missed opportunity, no. What about students? This just in, you have a master's in education, uh, (laughs) which I think is awesome. And to me, you've taught me so much through your broadcasts and you continue to teach. What about students? Are teachers critics? So I view teaching and coaching as very similar. Yeah. And I believe the best coaches are, in fact, teachers. And so I do believe that their job is to critique and to uh, have, you know, uh, constructive criticism, criticism that uh, hopefully elevates the, the level of their respective students. Like, I can remember something a an eighth grade teacher said to me. I believe this firmly. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know that teachers or coaches understand the power of influence they have. There are certain uh, teachers and coaches I wished had pushed me more, and those to whom I am so grateful for their willingness, their intrepid spirit to say things to my face, look me eye to eye, and say, frankly, this isn't good enough. Mm. Because at the end of the day, that student knows it Mm. Mm. to me. Mm. And if you're worth your salt, you want to hear it. Like, I am so thankful to that man who made the call to me to say, I don't think this puts you in the best light. Like, that to me is is the very definition of friendship and coaching and, and teaching. And I want those people in my life who, I always say this about Jeff Van Gundy, like he'll, he's a truth teller. If I'm acting like a jackass, he's going to look me in the eye and say, you know what, you're acting like a jackass. Or you are 100% wrong with, in this particular phase. And I have absolutely no problem. I, I am appreciative of the fact and know that Jeff would be equally receptive if I delivered the same message to him. I want that in my life. I think a lot of people do. Uh, and Jeff is a long time, you know, former uh, friar of yours, or once a friar, always a friar. Uh, but as we as we come to an end here a little bit with Doris Burke, are we losing this, Doris? You know, one of the things about teaching that's hard and coaching, you don't know what effect you've had until 20 years later. I get emails from students I taught 20 years ago. Are we losing this? Tell me the truth. Be firm in that moment, and that's the real learning. Are we losing this attitude from students and coaches? <sighs> Sorry to end you know, on a bomb. I can, <laughs> I can only tell you what I've heard from, from coaches, both on the collegiate and professional level. The sensibilities of the, of the respective athletes are changing, that it's requiring a different kind of coaching today. I, I don't know the answer to that because I'm not living that life as a coach or a teacher. I am very curious, and one of the concerning things that has been said to me because when I, when I am finished doing what I'm doing, I I've thought about teaching on the college level or perhaps oh, you'd be trying to go back and teaching and coaching on the high school level because I miss affecting people's lives on a daily basis, and. You know, that was what was an incredibly satisfying two years when I was an assistant basketball coach because I once was those young women who was in need of confidence and belief in herself. Um, it was it was very severely lacking back then, except between the lines of a basketball court where I knew I was good. Um, I, I wish I knew the answer. I hope not. I, I, I believe in this young generation. You know, I see things that Lin-Manuel Miranda is producing and doing, and I have incredible hope for the future. Uh, You know, you listen to what Kendrick Lamar is doing, and you think, gosh, almighty, these men are so talented. These women are so talented and smart. Um, I hope not. I hope not, because you know what? Evaluation and critique and criticism, it's all part of it. 
It's, it's, are we humble enough to accept it? Are we humble enough to deliver it? As we say goodbye, I was thinking of um, Phil Jackson, as I often do, um, <laughs> in recollection. You know, he was talking about uh, coaching Michael Jordan, and he's, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, in lieu of coaching them, you collaborate with them. And I don't think that's a uh, consolation prize. As we close with Doris Burke here on Murmur, I was thinking about longtime football coach, uh, esteemed football coach Bill Parcells. Uh, and also, uh, to put the duo together, which is really cool, uh, hollowed college basketball coach John Wooden coached UCLA, famously 11 championships, referenced a lot during their day their favorite poem, They Ask Me Why I Teach. Have you ever read this poem? I have not. It's by Judith Buchanan. I'll spare you the whole poem, although, again, more homework for you, uh, Ms. Burke. The poem is a series of she t- this teacher saying, I teach because of this, I teach because of that. Her last line is, they ask me why I teach, it's because because you have been the most splendid company. Doris Burke, for the last 45 minutes, you have been the most splendid company. And I want to thank you because I have bad news for you. Uh, you say you may want to be a teacher someday. You already are, and you already have been. I want to thank you, uh, and I want to say I'll be listening, whatever you're teaching, whether it's behind a mic or in a classroom. I would sign up any day. Thank you so much, Doris. Oh, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Safe travels. Thanks, Doris. Bye. Thank you. So did we convince you? Did Doris rewire any trepidation to be in the company of a critic? <laughs> I hope so. I'd like to hang out with Doris and watch a game. I'd like to be in a classroom with Doris and, and learn. I feel like I already was. I hope you do too. I want to thank Doris Burke for being here with us today on Murmur. I want to thank you for being here with us today on Murmur. But that's a trick idea. You can be with us anytime on Murmur. <laughs> Tricks on you. Download iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio. Subscribe, share, talk. Criticize if you must. Email me if you have a subject you would like me to tackle on the show. Murmurradio at gmail.com. I will match your subject with a guest. Maybe a critic, may not be a critic, but then you could come on to be a critic. See? Everyone's a critic. They were right. See ya. <laughs>